Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the big changes in B.C. condo and straddle laws announced this week by Premier David Eby, including phasing out rental restrictions in strata properties. Some strata buildings have no rentals allowed. All units must be owner-occupied. Eby wants to change that. All condos would be available to rent if the owner wants to rent them out. Here is Premier David Eby explaining it. Have a listen. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home, and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. Okay, super hot topic this week. Let's discuss it now. We've got both sides of it for you. Alex Hemingway is an economist, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Alex, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, good morning. Good morning to you. Wendy Wall is the president of the Vancouver Island Strata Owners Association. Wendy, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for inviting us. Good morning. You bet. Thank you to both of you. Alex Hemingway, let me go to you first. You like this plan, right? Tell me why. Yeah, well, there were, there were a suite of housing policies announced uh, earlier this week. This cha- the changes to the uh, Strata Act uh, make sense. There were a couple of changes there. One was to end the restrictions on uh, 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 age restrictions in buildings where you could have buildings that were 19 plus, you could have a, a, a family, you know, a couple living in a building who decided to start a family, have a child, and uh, then would be uh, forced to, to leave a building because of those types of age restrictions. Makes sense to get rid of that. And, you know, we're, we're in a very severe uh, housing crisis. Everyone knows that. There's a, an a immense shortage of housing. And so I think you know, the, as the, the premier alluded to in the clip you played, it, it really doesn't make sense under these circumstances to have uh, condos that are sitting empty as a result of these restrictions uh, on rentals uh, in a condo building. It doesn't make sense okay. for renters. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a constraint on, on owners as well. All right. Let's go to Wendy Wall. Wendy, what do you think? It's interesting to see stats right now on these empty condos. We don't know where this is coming from because the the studies that the Condominium Homeowners Association has done in 2016, 18, and 22 don't support that at all. In fact, it shows that the buildings built 2010 and after have high vacancy rates of 18 to 31%, as opposed to these older buildings uh, with rental restrictions having vacancy rates of 0 to 4%. Hmm. Okay, like David Eby said this week that there are 2,900 empty condos just sitting there empty because the owner is not allowed, the owner is an absentee owner and they're not allowed to rent them out. Are you, so you're saying that number, you don't believe that number? It's, 
it, it doesn't it doesn't drive with the the studies that have been done on the strata side. And I have to no. say, anecdotally, in the last four and a half weeks, I received emails from strata owners, hundreds of them. Not a single one has said, "Oh, great, now I can rent my condo." Not mm. one. So so it's very frustrating uh, for us to have been cut out of the rental task force um, study back in 2018 and to now be told, oh, there's all these condos available. One of the problems with this broad, simple, sweeping comment of all these empty condos is looking at uh, the, the high vacancy rates of the buildings that have no rental restrictions, the question is raised, why are they empty? Uh, okay. It's likely because of short-term rentals and uh, mm. speculation. Alex Hemingway, what do you say to that? Yeah, there's a few things to pick up on here. So, I, you know, on the one hand, I think 2,900 uh, um, empty units that, that can get out on the rental market is, is a very good thing. So where that number comes from uh, that the government put forward is from the data that emerges from the speculation and vacancy tax, right? So these right. are uh, folks who have applied for exemptions uh, to the vacancy tax uh, because, uh, you know, they're unable to rent uh, their their empty condo uh, under uh, the strata rule. So that's where that number comes from. Uh, and, you know, uh, 2,900 rentals, again, is an important in a housing crisis. But I think we should be clear. We should put this in context. You know, this is not something that is in and of itself going to solve the crisis. And, in fact, yeah. you know, I think... The, the more significant announcement from earlier this week in many ways was the Housing Supply Act and, and the relationship, uh, the, the new relationship with the municipalities that the provincial government right. is proposing. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to uh, suggest that we can put all our eggs in this basket, but we are in the situation where, you know, we've, we've been through a couple of decades of uh, two major problems. One is uh, chronic underinvestment from austerity-minded governments in dedicated affordable housing. That's part of how we get in the housing crisis. The other piece is uh, exclusionary municipal-level uh, zoning that has blocked apartments yeah. on most of our residential land. So we, we've, you know, we've dug ourselves a hole that's going to take time to get out of, and when things are this severe, I think we need to be making use of uh, every unit that's available. Okay. And, and we don't want to have discriminatory policies that you know, uh, seem to imply that renters are lesser neighbors and that they need to be restricted in buildings. I think that's really problematic as well. Okay, okay Wendy Wall, especially... Particularly about those renters in some of these buildings, can you explain why, like you mentioned that, you know, you've received a lot of negative feedback from the people that you represent to this idea today on these rental restrictions. Can you explain why, you know, some of these strata developments, these strata buildings are non are non-rental and why the people who are living in these buildings like it that way and want to keep it that way? It has nothing to do with being against tenants. It has to do with understanding how stratas work. And if we look at the 34,000 strata corporations in BC, a lot of people think of them as, as apartment-style buildings. They're not. 63% of them are two to nine units. So to have a policy that sweeping covers all of our stratas as if they're the same doesn't work. And a lot of people don't realize just how fragile the strata system works. It relies 100% on volunteers. These are untrained volunteers by and far. They live in communities where there's very few people who are able or willing to be on council. And a lot of people are, are saying things like, oh, well, this is going to cause some headaches. No, this is going to cause a serious problem because if we don't have these owner-occupied, there aren't going to be enough council members. 
If there's mm. not a council, they cannot legally function. They cannot pay the bills. They cannot make decisions. They can't release paperwork. So this is not about not liking renters. They are desperately trying to communicate that they will not be able to manage. And think about this. What would happen if 900,000 strata units failed because the system didn't support their needs? There, There has to be, we have to turn this around, flip it around to what can we do to support the strata community so that they will be better able Okay. To participate in this housing system in the way that you want. Okay. Talking about condo and strata rental restrictions with Alex Hemingway and Wendy Wall. Lots of phone calls here. Let's go right to them. Ray in Vancouver. Hi, Ray. Go ahead. Hi. How are you? I'm wondering, is it Larry, the guy you're talking to? Is that his name? Alex. Does Alex, does he have, does he, is he in a strata? Alex? No, I'm in a, I'm in a co-op, so I'm in a, a not entirely dissimilar you know, form so collective a living house. is uh, no, no, no. I, 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 I'm in a in a, a shared building, a co-op with a, about okay. sixty units. Yeah. Okay, Ray, get to get to your point here, Ray. Go the ahead. The point is, you know, we've had a place rented beside us last year, not last year, the year before. They rented it to a student. The next thing you know, you got five students living there, and old strata units weren't built that great years ago. The walls are thin, and you get to listen to boom, boom for. Out many hours on end, and then you tell them, you knock on their door, and they just ignore you. They laugh. They don't care. Alex, what do you say to that? Yeah, look, I, I've lived my life in apartments. I've been a renter. Now I live in a, a co-op, which is a bit similar uh, to renting, and that's, you know, that collective living is is complicated, and, you know, I, I wanted to acknowledge that in relation to what Wendy was saying earlier as well. There, there are real trade-offs there. I think when you look at the policy that was brought forward, they they struck a balance. They said, look, you know, we, we need to get these units uh, rented when we're in a housing crisis, but uh, we're going to give the strata council uh, the ability to to step in if you have a negligent uh, landlord situation who uh, who's not doing their duty as a landlord. Uh, we're going to have a, a permanent ability to have electronic uh, uh, strata meetings so you can have uh, uh, those landlords involved even if they're not uh, living on site. Uh, and, you know, that ultimately there, there is an issue of uh, the rights of uh, the owners in, in these buildings as well. You know, if you're in a situation where you own, you know, you're a, a young person, you own a, a one-bedroom condo and you decide to move in with your partner, you need to immediately uh, sell your condo because you're not allowed to, to rent it? Or, or is there some flexibility and is there some uh, okay. right to dispose of your property, you know, in the way that makes sense in your life situation? Hey, Wendy, speaking of a potential for a negligent landlord. Can you tell me your concerns there? Like, I'm just imagining one of these smaller, oldest strata properties that you described earlier. You've got a volunteer uh, strata council. Let's say you've got a tenant that's causing problems. The landlord, the owner's not around. Does that make the strata council effectively kind of the landlord's got to go deal with it? Absolutely. And unless you've served in a strata council, you don't realize just what a long-involved process it is under the law, even to uh, give notice um, of an issue, uh, go through a a process of fines. There's multiple council meetings involved. There's multiple letters. And right now, if this were to happen, even if it doesn't happen, we immediately need some changes to the Strata Property Act. Right now, if a tenant is breaking a bylaw, let's say a a noise issue that's serious, we can't find the owner. We have to find the tenant. So in reality, what happens is those fines go on for months, the behavior doesn't change. 
the landlord doesn't care because they haven't been fined. If we could change even that one part of the Strata Property Act, it would streamline the process. But the point okay. is, it takes months of this. So even by the time that you, they might be ready to go to the residential tenancy branch, it is a long period of time. And I also want to stress, going to the residential tenancy branch is not an easy process. We're dealing with volunteer councils. Right. What gives them... <laughs> How can we possibly expect them to go through the education to learn how, basically the, what it's like to be a landlord and to follow the law to take a tenant to the residential tenancy branch? To do it correctly, they're going to have to hire a lawyer. And there is one sentence in, in the communications um, from our premier that says that all of the cost will be borne by the landlord. But in reality, that doesn't happen because when we, as strata volunteers, need to reach out to legal counsel, it almost always means that we can never recoup the money for getting those lawyers. Squeeze in another call here, Daryl and Coquitlam. Daryl, go ahead. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the the Premier is somewhat tone-deaf, and he goes after the very low-hanging fruit that he can change with the stroke of a pen. What he has done will not create one more rental unit. It just won't. I would have been impressed if he said BC Housing is going to start construction of 500 rental units. I agree with Wendy, and I would also ask Alex to explain there is a big difference between being in a co-op, I understand their corporations, and being in a strata. Okay. And so they're much different. Okay. You could explain that. We've just got two minutes left here, so you got about a minute each here. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. Co-ops and stratas are different. I have friends in stratas. Co-ops are actually even more involved. We're also volunteer-run, so we have to deal with a lot of the same things as stratas, and then also do things like upkeep the the property in various ways on on a volunteer basis. So I I absolutely sympathize with that, you know, that uh, volunteer side of things. I think what Wendy said in terms of uh, the ability to find the landlord, not the tenant, sounds very reasonable to me. And maybe that's a change that needs to be made. And, and certainly the, the issue of uh, cost recovery uh, in these types of situations, that was part of the government's announcement. And, you know, uh, that there should be follow through on that. So uh, I really do think that's, uh, that's reasonable. And just at, at the end of the day, what I would say is, you know, <laughs> we're in a very difficult situation here. We've failed to build enough pur- purpose-built rental uh, yeah. over the past few decades. That's a much better situation for renters. We need all the available units today, including uh, you know uh, condo units with uh, rental restrictions, which don't exist in in some other provinces as well. So this is an entirely new territory. But you know the bottom line is we need to address the housing shortage okay. and, and and the shortage of investment in affordable housing. Okay, less than a minute left here, Wendy. Would you like to see the government? You know, you've outlined a lot of concer- concerns here this morning. Would you like to see the government put a pause on this, do some more study on it before it goes through? Your thoughts? Uh, we'd like them to reach out to the strata community and get some public consultation there because they really do need to be able to give their voice. They have legitimate concerns, and they're not bad people. And right now they're being um, framed as, as the big bad guy, and I think that's completely unfair. Uh, let's give them a chance and let's work out some of their concerns and then see uh, you know, what, what we can go okay. forward with. All right, let's talk about the campaign now to bring police officers back into Vancouver schools. Now, this is the school liaison officer program that was run for decades by the Vancouver Police Department, specially trained officers stationed at Vancouver schools. The previous Vancouver school board 
canceled the program. The police officers were removed from the schools. Now you have a new school board in place after the recent election. A promise to restore the program, bring police officers back into the schools. This has been the subject of some heated debate at the Vancouver School Board this week. We're going to play some of that for you here in just a moment. Very pleased to welcome right now Ali Chowdhury. Ali went to high school in East Van, and he supports the school liaison police officer program in Vancouver schools. Ali, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me. Can you can you remind me, Ali, what, where you went to school and... Did they? They had. What was it like when you dealt with uh, school liaison police officers when you were in high school? Yeah, I went to a school here in East Vancouver, and you know, safety is just one small part of the school liaison officer program that I feel people um, still don't understand. You know, safety is just one part for us. It was such yeah. a good opportunity to be um, involved in programs that teachers and counselors didn't have any ideas about, such as the VPD Student Challenge or the cadets programs and having the SLO introduce us to these programs and being a familiar face in these programs made it that much more comfortable to go. Um, so right. it was a person that uh, was there to be a resource, um, be a mentor, be a friend. So it was a lot of relationship building and understanding a little bit more about the um, you know, police department and seeing a positive image of a police officer. Um, so yeah, that's how it was in our school. Right. And as you mentioned, you know, there may be a perception that police officers were there to protect kids. And, you know, if there is violence at the school and that certainly was part of the role, but they were also there as like they would do like counseling or they would help kids. who Kids would come to them if they're having trouble or problems at home. Right. And there would be kind of accounts. I know they would coach sports teams and stuff like that, too. So they did more than just like protecting kids in the school. Absolutely. And you know what, that's one of the things that I feel is uh, one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that, um, you know, people that argue against the program have. I mean, I've been a part of this the last time this um, argument was happening and this time as well. And it's the number one thing that keeps coming up that, you know, they actually don't do anything to prevent bullying and all this stuff. And you know what, like, it's it's true. The SLO is not going to be a magic person that just stops all of that from happening. But that's only one small part that they play, and they do make a difference, you know, having that police car parked up front to help deter crime and having that presence in the school. And But you know what, that's not, again, that's not the main role that they have. They have their role is to build that relationship at a young age with the youth. And that relationship is important because the police are going to be here in our community. As I was telling the board yesterday, we're human, they're human, and us running away from the problem of building a relationship with them isn't going to help anybody. Right. And this is a great opportunity to do that right in schools. Right. So there are hearings underway this week at the Vancouver School Board on this program and whether it should be reinstated in the Vancouver school system. As you just mentioned there, you presented yesterday to the school board. You gave your side why you support the program. There have been a lot of speakers on the other side as well. Let's listen to some of them here now. Uh, So this is earlier this week, a Vancouver school board member of the community, Lena Shillington, saying that she doesn't support police officers in schools. Let's have a listen to what she had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Some folks say they feel safer with police around children, but I ask, at whose expense does that feeling of safety come from? This is where the breakdown of good and bad kids needs to stop. No kid is bad, we know that. 
there can be bad behavior that adults, not armed police, need to help them with. Okay, so she says that if their kids are having trouble in school, they're, they're getting into problems, there are ways to help those kids other than having an, an armed police officer in the school. What do you say to that? Of course there is. Of course there is help to help the other kids. There's a counselor, there's a teacher, there's the principals. The SLO maybe isn't the best resource for everyone. But what about for the kids that it is? Because the majority of the kids do appreciate having an SLO there because they help with the clubs. Um, you know, they help with planning after school dances and other events. So what I would say to her is you're absolutely right. Maybe the uh, SLO isn't the best resource for another student. Um, that's why right. we have other opportunities for them. But that doesn't mean you cut out the, uh, the SLO for all the good work that they do for all the other students. Okay, let's listen to another bit of testimony this week at the Vancouver School Board. This is another citizen who presented this week, Jeremy Suhan, and here's what he had to say. Have a listen. Police are not welcome in Vancouver schools and make members of marginalized communities feel unwelcome and unsafe, uh, especially an armed officer. I think it's appalling that the school board would reconsider or would consider reinstating a person wielding a deadly weapon into our places of learning. Okay, so it covered a couple of points there. We talked about marginalized groups, you know, kids are indigenous kids, black kids, other racialized minority kids who, who may feel uncomfortable with a police officer in the school. We heard that a lot this week from opponents of the program. So I want to get your thoughts on that, Ali. But also, also the gun issue. Like, you know, you heard him say there that he finds it appalling that you'd have a, an armed police officer in a place of learning. What do you say to that point about the, the gun issue? Well, yeah, first, just to address the marginalized youth. Again, yeah, he's sure. Trying to represent, again, he's trying to represent all of us. And it's been, a, it's been real hard for, I know, a lot of people in our community to constantly be put under this light that these people are trying to represent all of us. I've had conversations with many people, and you're just not representing us. I'm not sure, you know, you might have your own opinion, and I think that's the way you should keep it. Um, but for myself, I held a rally and we had black students there, indigenous students, Asian students, South Asian students. Um, you know, unfortunately, none of the news outlets showed up, but we held a rally there. And, it, you know, it just goes to show that there are members of that community that do love the program. Yesterday at the board and an indigenous student that I work with, um, you know, Liam came on to talk about how, you know, and he had a tough time to do this, but he really stood up and talked to the board and said, yeah, I do support the program because I was a part of the Indigenous Cadet Program, the Cadet Program, and all these other things. So there's definitely people that um, are marginalized that do support the program as well. And what would you say to those people, right? Yeah. And on terms of the gun issue, I mean, that's a, you know, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not as well versed when it comes to policy and stuff with the VPD, but I think it's a policy thing. But on, on a personal level, you know, that's where a safety thing comes in. You know, as, as a you know, as a police officer, you've got to deal with some situations that might arise. And I know we've heard of stories that happen in schools. And, um, you know, the presence of a gun is um, unfortunately important because of the situations that the police officer can be put in. So it's for their own safety. And, um, you know, for people that don't feel comfortable around guns, I, I totally acknowledge that. And we had yeah. a SLO talking yesterday at the board, a previous SLO, who said that, he would try to hide the gun, right? He would wear a plain clothes and a hoodie and actually try to hide the gun because I think he understands as well. Some people don't feel comfortable about it. And I think we, yeah. I think we acknowledge that and work with that. 
Right. And I remember at the height of this debate when the previous school board shut the program down, the Vancouver Police Department talked about, well, look, there are ways we can modify the program. If if the issue is kids who are uncomfortable seeing an unarmed police officer, you could have you could you could uh, unarm them. I mean, you could have police officers in school without a sidearm on their on their belt or it could be a concealed gun. You know, if people are uncomfortable seeing it or whatever. So, I mean, the. The police department, as I recall, said, look, we're willing to work with that element of it. And the previous board didn't seem to have any desire to kind of work with the board on uh, the police department on that point. Uh, speaking to Ali Chowdhury, he's a supporter of the Vancouver police school, police officer liaison program in Vancouver schools. Should it be restored in Vancouver schools? Let's listen to another presenter at the school board this week, Ali. This is Aaron Peters. Now, You'll hear Aaron here talk specifically about Indigenous kids, Indigenous students, and how they feel about police officers in schools. Here's what he had to say. Consider for the moment um, the role that the RCMP has played in the past in rounding up Indigenous children from their homes and taking them to Indian residential schools. So how can some of them claim that continuing to have police presence in schools is a positive and safe place for Indigenous students? You know, I have no doubt that there are are students in the school system who genuinely are uncomfortable with police officers in the school. But I, I wonder, is there, is there any kind of evidence on polling on that or any kind of, they did a survey. I remember that the, the previous school board that said most kids like a major, a clear majority of students supported the program, but it also highlighted, you know, racialized minority kids, indigenous kids, some of whom felt otherwise. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And you know what? We may not have the best relationship between, um, you know, marginalized youth, some marginalized youth and the police. And, and we've got to acknowledge that. But we've got to not run away from that problem. We've got to go, how do we build this broken relationship back up? And what better way can we do that from having someone um, in schools that's a positive image for the police that goes... I'm here because I love kids. I want to be involved in the community and I want to build a relationship. They don't go there. They don't go there to look for trouble or investigate. Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, this is my personal opinion, but safety is such a small part that they play. Um, so having this broken relationship needs to be healed and fixed because, you know, students aren't going anywhere and neither are police officers in the community. Um, so I think this is a great opportunity to do that. And in terms of her mentioning the RCMP, um, you know, the, the school system wasn't always perfect, and it did involve things such as some of the things that she mentioned. But the school system changed, and so has the SLO program. And we have, uh, and, the, and I like to speak specifically about the Vancouver School Board and the VPD, um, not the RCMP, just because we have one of the most diverse um, and uh, diverse police forces here in Vancouver, which we're really lucky to have. All right, talking about the school liaison officer program in Vancouver schools. Vancouver police officers in Vancouver schools, should they be brought back into the school system? Ali Chowdhury is my guest. He supports the program. He thinks it should be restored by the new school board. Let's uh, go to your phone calls here. Margaret on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Margaret. Hi, dear. Absolutely. We should have someone in those schools. This is a different world. We're, 
they and they should be armed. That doesn't mean he's going to start shooting everybody. But isn't it wonderful if they could have had someone in the states for those little kids? If someone was there, it's p- part of his his um, outfit that he has all that. And I think people are just debating so much. Quit it. This is what they should be put in. And I would feel much better knowing that that kids are protected if it came down to that. You've got all the bad guys having all their stuff, and you're sending him in there with nothing? No, absolutely. Hats off to them doing this, to have someone in there. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Well, it's like you said earlier, Ali, this perception that these officers are there in case there's like a school shooting or an active shooter or something. You know, I don't think that's ever... I don't think a, a school liaison officer is ever engaged in something, a, a crisis like that. It's more about like helping these kids who have problems who come to them. You know, like Absolutely. there's, there's problems at home. They're, they've got friends in a gang life. They, they've got, there's abuse going on in their home or something. That's what yeah, I think. You know, mo- and, go ahead. And, go ahead. It's, and you know, and that a lot of people argue that that's the role of a counselor and stuff. Yeah, and you know, and and you know what? You're absolutely right. That is the role of a counselor, but it doesn't hurt to have another resource there. Somebody might feel more comfortable because they've built that relationship with that schoolie as an officer, um, yeah. right? And because of different reasons, maybe they're more approachable to that specific person. So having another resource there to listen as an ear is never wrong, and we should always have that opportunity available. And counselors are swamped with hundreds of other students, and the SLO can be a little more personable and spend some more time. You know, yeah. one of the previous SLOs that uh, Britt Tanya was just talking yesterday to the board about how he used to have candy on, you know, on his desk and have kids come and hang out in his room and they'd hang out for so long that he'd have to eventually kick them out because it was, you know, it was time to go. So those those are the meaningful relationships that they built within these schools. Okay, Linda on the line in Richmond. Hi, Linda, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm a former school trustee and a former city councillor in Richmond. And I totally agree with your guest, Allie, about the importance of the relationships that uh, the school liaison officers have with students. And it's not just vulnerable students. There's also students who are interested in law enforcement. And I think Allie mentioned there's programs, cadet programs, that students who may not otherwise have the opportunity uh, find out about. And I know in Richmond it's been discussed many, many times, but it's such a valuable program. And yeah. I know the school board and the city council is committed to keeping this program running. Okay, we'll see what they do in Vancouver. Thank you for calling in. Let's go to Shane. Squeeze in one more here. Shane in Vancouver. Shane, you got 30 seconds here. I think the students should have a vote in Vancouver, and they can vote if they want the police officers there or not. And uh, from my experience 20 years ago, I was bullied, and I was I was even an athlete. And... Uh, I, I was afraid at school. Uh, people would light up lighters, stick them on the back of your hand or neck, uh, punch you in the back while you're opening your locker. Um, you know, it's, um, it's kind of terrifying at school when you have packs, um, bullies, and the teachers. There's only so much they can do, and uh, their authority only goes so far, and they, they don't want to be involved half the okay. time. Okay. Shane, thank you for the call. We had more calls there coming in we couldn't get to. Uh, we'll ha- just have to have you back, Ali. Thank you for coming on today. Of course. Thank you for having me. All 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia. How is it working out so far? Well, I think for most people, if you have not been involved in a crash, and certainly if you have not been injured in an auto collision, uh, you probably think it's working out pretty good, darn good for you because you're paying less in your premiums for your insurance. Your ICBC premiums have been cut down for sure. Everyone's got to love that. The problem with no-fault auto insurance, though, for a lot of people, I'm hearing from a lot of people on this, if you are seriously injured in a crash, then you've got to deal with ICBC, and we're starting to hear some stories about how it's not working out as well as they hoped. I've got Keith Colpit standing by. He was involved in a recent uh, car crash himself. He's going to tell his story. Have a listen to this report here now and some of the backlash to no-fault auto insurance. This is from Global News reporter Julie Nolan. The Trial Lawyers Association of BC says the lack of recourse for many British Columbians is creating a lack of accountability for poor drivers. Even with current legal fights underway for charter rights like the right to sue, not much can be done. This new system has effectively taken away lawyers and taken away advocates to help them navigate through the system. So they're really left to the devices of of ICBC telling them effectively what kind of compensation they should receive. Okay, so what? how is this working out now? What is it like if you've been injured in a crash and you've got to deal with ICBC? Well, let's talk to one senior uh, from Surrey who was recently and sadly injured in a car crash. Very pleased to welcome Keith Colpitz to the show. Keith, thank you very much for coming on today. You're very welcome, Mike. Hey, Keith, I'm very sorry for your troubles and for the injury you, you sustained in this accident. Can you, uh, can you tell me what happened? What happened to you here? Sure, uh, but let me give you a heads up. I get a bit emotional when I'm talking about this. So, I understand. I understand. <clears throat> okay, I was out uh, running errands October 21st, uh, shortly after noon. I was coming home. I was a few blocks from my house going through uh, the intersection of 132nd and 108th in Surrey. And bang, out of nowhere, I was hit by a a vehicle being driven, a stolen car actually being driven, chased by the police. Uh, spun my car around and took me to the hospital. I have seven broken ribs and other <laughs> lesser injuries. Okay, I've seen the uh, the video of this accident. It was on Global News this weekend. Man, oh man, Keith, you're you're lucky to be alive. This was like a high speed collision here. Like when when that other vehicle hit your car, did you know what happened? What was I what was going? Have a clue. I just yeah. it just everything went white and it was smoky. I guess from the airbag, and I was spinning. I and then I got a pain in my chest. I didn't actually know exactly what had happened until I saw the, the footage on Global. Yeah. So tell me about your injuries. You mentioned how many broken ribs you've got. Seven, six on the right side and one on the upper left from the seatbelt, I assume. Oh, man, oh, man. Thank goodness you had that seatbelt on. So tell me about those uh, those injuries. How are those How are those healing up for you? Um, well, they've eased up some. I mean, it's been a month now, right? But yeah. they've eased up some, but, I mean, I'm, I'm finding all kinds of other things I didn't expect, like my feet and my ankles are so swollen I can't even wear shoes. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, the ache, you know, things you'd expect, aches and pains, and I got pain all down my right arm and and my left arm, all the way down to the wrist, and my right leg. So it's you know something new every day, just about. 
I'm really sorry you're going through this, man. I, I really, I, I really am. Tell me a little bit about um, ICBC now and this new this new system they have. Has ICBC been there for you? Are you getting the help you need? In your, you think? Um, medical wise, possibly. Uh, they finally got me to see. Uh, came to the house actually. Uh, occupational therapist, they're called. Yeah. Uh, but th- this was a month after the fact. I mean, that's you know, I needed something three weeks ago, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. and th- that was all. So far, they set me up, trying to set me up with some physio, and obviously some counseling. But I haven't heard anything back about that. They paid for me to go to my family doctor and back. They've set up a taxi account, but only there and back. And they reimbursed me for a couple of receipts uh, after some quibbling and arguing about them. Oh. Yeah, and Not I noticed, like, I know you did an interview this earlier this week with Global News, and it, it it seems like you started getting a little bit more help from ICBC after you had spoken to the media. Would you definitely. say? Definitely, yeah. yes. <laughs> That's interesting. It's interesting that often when you, you speak to a reporter, things start to happen for you. Um, seems that way, yes. Yeah. What about um, now? You mentioned the other vehicle that hit your vehicle was it was a stolen vehicle. That's what, that's what the police told you. Oh yes, a stolen vehicle. By they were chasing him. They had a helicopter as well as the the ground chase. Yeah. And he did have a gun. A, a bystander told me. So. Whoa. Okay. Can you? So, what are your options here now in terms of going to court or getting? Well, let's talk about pain and suffering first of all. You're in, you're in pain. You're suffering under this no fault system. Can you get compensated for pain and suffering or no? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, it's not. No, it's you just getting the, uh, you know, the, the health care that you say that they, they understand. Do you believe that you're getting the adequate care for your injuries? Uh, it's taken a while. I mean, not so far. I mean, maybe it will be in the future. But, uh, you know, how long do I have to wait? I mean, I need to talk to somebody and get all these feelings out, right? Yeah. Speaking of Keith Colpitz, he's a Surrey senior injured in a car crash and his uh, experience with ICBC. So what about, can you go to court now and and sue this other driver? I can, but um, the police officer came to take my statement. He told me that this guy's, my concern was, is he in a gang? <clears throat> and he's not, apparently, but he says he's, you know, he says, what are you going to do? Garnish his welfare check? I mean, the guy's got nothing, right? So what am I going to get out of that? Yeah. Keith, I want to thank you for sharing your story today, and I hope your injuries completely heal and you get back on your feet 100% as soon as possible. Okay, and can I mention something? Yes. Uh, that There's been a GoFundMe started to help me out. I was just about to mention that, and Keith, Keith has got... He's got expenses. He's not getting a lot out of this, so I encourage you to visit the GoFundMe, and you'll find it under the headline in the GoFundMe is Senior Injured in Car Crash. Senior Injured in Car Crash for Keith Colpitz. That's his GoFundMe. And I hope people throw, throw some money in there for you today. Keith, thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much, Mike. Okay, Keith Colpitz there. He's a Surrey senior who was injured in that crash. Stolen vehicle was the other car involved. Let's check in with Bill Dick now. Bill is the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. Bill, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. What, what jumps out at you when you hear that story? Well, uh, for, first, the first thing that jumps out is how sad it is that uh, Keith has to have a GoFundMe 
to help them out and to, to help them going forward. I mean, I think that's really a, a sad thing that jumped out to me. Uh, the second part is just how difficult it's been for him uh, to try to navigate this. Imagine uh, if he'd had a brain injury or, or something that really uh, made him cognitively challenged. And, and how is he going to how is he going to navigate this on his own? Right. How would it be different under the previous system that was in place? Like right now, we've got this no fault insurance system. If this if the circumstances were exactly the same, this was the same accident, the same injuries. How how would it be handled differently under the old system? Well, I mean, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but. In the old system, we had no-fault benefits for, for everyone up to about $300,000. So everyone, whether you're at fault or not at fault, we had all of those benefits already. Uh, but what's been taken away is an individual's right to sue an at-fault driver. So the person who's not at fault, all of, all of that has been taken away. And everyone is kind of equal now in terms of, of what benefits that they're available for. So... The old system, you would at least have access to compensation, even even with a um, a driver who's had a stolen car. You could potentially sue the police who may have been negligently pursuing that that vehicle, and you would have the ability to hold people accountable um, and to make yourself whole. You know, the cornerstone of tort is restorative justice. Someone harms you, um, you can seek compensation for that person uh, to make yourself whole. That's all been taken away. Um, and, and so that's changed fundamentally. So everyone right. now, now has to basically deal with ICBC without um, recourse to pursue the at-fault driver. And, and lawyers are no longer involved at all. So you're going to have okay. to navigate this on your own. Okay, I remember when they brought this new system in, they said that there would be some limited cases where you could go to court and sue, and especially if, if there uh, is law-breaking going on, like if you're hit by a, a drunk driver, for example. Yeah. And you, you just heard Keith Colpitz there say this other vehicle that hit him was apparently a stolen vehicle, and he was told that there there was an opportunity for him to hire a lawyer and sue, but his concern was there would be nothing there to recover, that the guy who hit him doesn't have any money. Right. That's there are there are some rare exceptions to being able to pursue the the person who is at fault if they have uh, committed a criminal offense and been convicted. Right. But you will have to go after them individually. There's no insurance behind that. So if they have no money, there there is literally no compensation. And the only amount that you can go after them is for your pain and suffering. So there are some limited exceptions. In the old system, if you had someone who you know was involved in a criminal activity, uh, ICBC would breach that driver, but you would still have available to you uh, an ability to go after um, full compensation. So that's okay. it's fundamentally changed. All right. Talking no-fault auto insurance, Bill Dick, President, Trial Lawyers Association of BC. Lots of calls, Don and Tawasin. Hi, Don. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, I have talked to you before, and this just makes my blood boil. I feel so sorry for that guy. I was hit yeah. a year ago, and I've been dealing with ICBC and all this. And what happens? He has no idea. You get assigned. Uh, you, you get assigned. You can see a physio for twenty twenty visits, or say three months. By the time you get in, you have uh, like a week left. And m- most of them, they're just booked. Massage therapists, they won't deal with ICBC. Then your adjuster calls you every few months to see how you're doing, and then they decide whether they're going to extend it or not. 
So uh, about a year ago, I was assigned to a pain doctor. I just got in to see him last week. He gave me all these injections in my neck, my back, and I had the same thing, the the arm, and uh, he's sending me to a nerve doctor, and I haven't heard from ICBC for a while. But the bottom line is, is ICBC is deception, reflection, I mean, they deflect deception, and uh, if you cause the accident, you're fine. I was 0% responsible, and I was hit at a high speed. And it just, like, you can even tell by my voice, it just makes me go crazy to hear about this. Okay, Don, I'm sorry for your troubles there, and I hope your injuries heal up real quickly. Bill, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, his story is very common from what we're hearing, and, and this is one of the issues, is that you were literally beholden to what ICBC says and tells you in terms of what benefits you're going to get for how long you're going to get them. And you really have no recourse as the injured person. You can't challenge them. And so we have a government-run monopoly uh, who makes all the decisions and and literally no recourse for the people to challenge them. I thought, I, thought that yeah. Dave, I thought that David Eby said that if you were unsatisfied with the treatment you're getting from ICBC, you could appeal to uh, a tribunal or a fairness commissioner. And there's a fairness commissioner who's run through ICBC. There, there is a civil resolution tribunal that's a government-run tribunal right. that is in and of itself very, very difficult to navigate. And people, again, will not have advocates to help them. What, what do you do to challenge? What evidence do you need to muster? What medical evidence do you need to challenge this, this huge multi-billion dollar insurance company? Let's if go to Ryan. Yeah, let's squeeze another couple of calls in here in, in the interest of time. Ryan in Maple Ridge. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Mike. Like I was telling your, uh, your producer there, uh, my father has stage four cancer, and my mother was his primary caregiver. And she was uh, a gentleman crossed the center line and, and killed her and my aunt in a head-on accident. Oh, oh, man. And uh, for the last year, you know, my sisters and my wife and I have used up all our vacation time to take care of my father because he needs around the care around the clock care and we have no recourse because of no fault insurance we have no recourse to go after this after icbc to help pay for these costs on for the amount of time he has left and the young kid has nothing we can't we can't sue him he has nothing so what what do we do we're left holding the bag and we have and we have no recourse uh like gentlemen said we can't even go to the tribunal because he's deemed at not at fault we have no recourse to recover any costs that we're incurring here because of this through no fault of our own. Okay, Ryan, thanks for calling. Thank you for calling. I'm sorry for your loss. We just have a minute left here. Bill, your thoughts. Um, Again, this is going to be very, very difficult for people to try to navigate on their own. Um, And, you know, something like this in a tort system, at least you'd have the ability to, you know, access Courts, independent uh, courts, try to get that compensation for, you know, people who are now having to look after people. And, and that's basically been taken away. Bill, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Go, uh, by the way, go Canada. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.